Morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Now, I ducked out while the announcements were happening. Will, did you mention the Christensen's and how they're going? No. No, okay. Let me give you an update. Many of you uh, might already know this, but for those who don't, uh, we all know uh, Hans and Kate and the kids love sharing and they've been sharing COVID with each other this week. So they're all isolating at home. If you see them in the garden, yell at them, get back inside and things like that. Um, but Hans has been fairly unwell this week. I was speaking to him. He spent a whole day in bed with a pretty severe flu, as you can imagine. The kids seem to have been hit less hard. But um, as I pray that we'd uh, be transformed by this word, how about I pray for them and for other families among us who have been affected by COVID lately? Let's pray. Father God, we do pray now as we uh, spend time in your word, as we feast on it together, would you transform us by your spirit? Would you make us see Jesus more clearly and love him more, be more willing to hand over more and more of our life to him? And Father, now we also think of uh, Hans and Kate and their family and, and for all the other families who have been isolating, who are currently isolating, who may need to isolate in the future. We pray that you would be with them, protecting them from uh, a really severe illness, carrying them through this time. Pray that as a community, we would love those who are isolating, even though we can't physically be with them. Father, please do protect this community from this sickness, but all the more, Father, we pray that we would be a community that shines the love of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, who here has been to Questacon? Questacon? We've got a few hands up. It's the kind of National Science and Fun Museum in Canberra. Uh, when I was a kid, I went to Questacon uh, with my family. And one of the first exhibits you see at Questacon is what they call the freefall. I've got a photo of it here. Oh, these guys are the best. Questacon freefall. The idea is to drop down to a slide. So it's like, you know, you drop, but then you slide out the other way. Uh, I was there. I saw the six-metre drop, and I was like, I've got to have some of that action. That looks awesome. So my two older brothers, uh, they went up and they did it and I watched them do it and they were totally fine and uh, I was talking to the person at the bottom of the stairs and I was like, you know, is it safe, is it right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's totally safe, you're going to fall but you'll slide, it, it, it's totally fine. Hundreds of people do it a day, you'll be fine. You're not going to be the one that dies doing this. So, okay, so I climb up the stairs, you've got to climb all the way up these stairs and uh, I don't know if you can see but at the top there's a ledge and what you do is you sit on the ledge, you swing your feet over, and then there's a bar just above the ledge, and you hold onto the bar, and you hang from the bar, and you drop. I got my feet over the ledge, I was holding onto the bar, but my butt was glued to that step. Like, I could not get off that step. I was terrified. Like, by the time I was up there and looking down, it didn't look like six metres, it looked like 50 metres. I was petrified. And so I had to do the walk of shame. I went back down the stairs, had to like shimmy past everyone there. And like they say, look, it's fine. You're allowed to go down. You don't have to slide, but you can, you can see it in everyone's faces. They're like, oh, check out this little kid. He's too freaked out. Yeah, fear was holding me back from what I assume is a very fun slide. I don't actually know. Fear was holding me back. Now, that's a trivial example of fear holding us back from something. But it actually shows us something that we feel a fair bit in our lives. Oftentimes, we feel that fear is holding us back from living the best life we could live. 
right? From living the lives we want to live full of, you know, joy and celebration and partying and all that, we, we feel like fear can hold us back from that. And so my question for us today is what fear is holding you back from living the life you want to live? What fear is holding you back from living the life you want to live? Maybe your fears are around your workplace. Will I under-deliver at work? Will I let my team down? Will I let my boss down? Will they find out that I'm not actually as qualified for this job as they think I am? Are your fears around your performance? Are your fears around your family? I know this is a fear I have. I fear that my kids won't grow up to be who I want them to be. And the fear is that it will be my fault, that I will have failed as a father, I will have failed as a parent. And there's times when that fear holds me back from being the person I want to be. Are you afraid that you're not good enough? Are you afraid that you won't succeed? Are you afraid you're not good enough for your relationships? Are you afraid you're not good enough for God? These kinds of fears can hold us back, but more importantly, they can hold us back from living a gospel-shaped life. By that I mean these fears can hold us back from completely trusting God with everything that we have. A few weeks ago, uh, when we talked about a similar miracle, a storm on the sea that Jesus calmed, we, we saw that there is two opposites in the Bible. There's faith and there's fear. And they're couched as opposites because fear can get in the way of us trusting Jesus. Just like fear got in the way of me trusting, you know, the staff who said, the slide's fine, you'll be fine. I was too afraid. I couldn't trust them. I couldn't believe them and it held me back. So are your fears holding you back from trusting Jesus with your whole life, with the entirety of who you are and what you do and what you want to be? Does your fear of not meeting expectations mean that you dedicate so much time to your performance that you neglect your spiritual health? Does your fear of other things hold you back from trusting in Jesus? That's what we're talking about today. Fear holding us back from living the truly gospel-shaped life. In this passage, we see the disciples are afraid. Once again, they're on the lake. Once again, there's a big storm. But unlike last time, Jesus isn't in the boat. He's stayed on shore praying. Yet when Jesus comes to them, he gives us more reason to trust him, more reason to not be afraid. And then we see the response of Jesus' followers when they realize they can trust him. So let's get into it today. This miracle, uh, as we saw in the video, actually, I'm not going to summarize the miracle too much because we saw it in that excellent video takes place straight after the feeding of the 5,000. So uh, last week we did the feeding of the 5,000. This happens straight after. And what happens is they, they, um, Jesus dismisses the disciples into the boat. He says, get on the boat, head across the lake. I'll catch up with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to dismiss the crowd. He sends the crowd away, goes up on the mountain to pray. And he prays and he prays and he prays. Long into the evening... And he prays long enough that a storm blows up on the lakes. And you might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about these storms. They they tended to blow up really fast and they were really quite strong and severe. And so the disciples are wrestling with the boat in the midst of the storm. Uh, It doesn't say if it was severe enough that they thought they were going to drown, but they're certainly wrestling with the boat. And as they do this, they see a figure walking along the waves. It must have been the most bizarre sight 
You're, you're straining with the boat, trying to keep it under control, trying to keep it from sinking. And all of a sudden, on the waves, there's a figure walking. You can understand why they thought it might be a ghost. They, they don't quite have the categories to explain exactly what's going on. And so they, they start freaking out. They're terrified. What, what is this thing walking? It's not, it's not walking on a flat lake, right? It's a storm. He's walking on the waves. But it isn't a ghost. It's Jesus. And Jesus calls out to them to calm them. So come with me to Matthew chapter 14. Have a look at verse 27. If you have a Bible in front of you, it's going to be really helpful to keep it open. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, crack out your phone or something. Um, it'll be really helpful for you to track along with me as we read through this together. Chapter 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Last time Jesus was in the boat and he calmed the storm. And so now when the disciples see that it's Jesus, when Jesus says, don't worry, I'm here, you can just imagine how their fears would have been eased somewhat. Jesus, the guy who calmed the storm last time, is here. Jesus' presence is comforting to the disciples. They know Jesus has the power over the wind and the waves. They know Jesus can speak a word and protect them. Jesus' presence is a great comfort for them. But when Jesus speaks, he actually says more than I think the disciples would have even heard. They would have seen Jesus and been like, yes, he's here, we're okay. But the words Jesus uses speak to us today and tell us something more. Jesus says, it is I, right? It's a bit of a funny thing to say. In the video, uh, they kind of say that he says, it's me, Jesus, because that's, that's how we might understand those words. But actually, those words are literally, I am. So in the, original, in the original Greek this was written in, it's the word ego eimi. So I've got a slide coming up to help us explain it. Ego eimi means I am. But it's, it's like really emphatic. It's like I am. I myself am. I am. I am. And what that clues us into is something that God said in the Old Testament to Moses. Do you remember the story of Moses and the burning bush where Moses is on the holy ground and he, and he speaks to God through the burning bush and, and God says to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Release them from their slavery and their bondage. I have come to rescue my people. And Moses says, who, who should I say has sent me? Who, who do I say has sent me to Pharaoh to demand that he released these people. And then Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, which you see behind me, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you would say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. When Jesus says those words, ego eimi, I am, he, he's claiming that he is the same God of Israel. He's using that same divine name that God gave himself in Exodus chapter 14. These words are significant because Jesus says, I am, I am the great I am. I am Yahweh, I am God. Thanks guys, you can get rid of that slide now. Jesus is saying, you don't need to fear, not simply because I'm here and I can calm the storm. You don't need to fear because I am. I am God, I am the great I am. Now, in the midst of the storm, the disciples probably didn't hear that, right? 
They, they probably didn't claw to that. They were just happy that Jesus was there and he could calm the storm. But when Matthew records this for us, he chose his words very carefully. He chose to record that Jesus said, I am, to, to make us think back to Exodus and to the divine name so that when we would read this today, we would see not only can Jesus calm the storm like he's already done before, but Jesus is God himself. Jesus is the great I am is the one walking on the lake. Hey, Bang, is my mic working? Should I just use this? Okay, I just feel like it's keep cutting out. Sorry, everyone. The great I am, the, God, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the whole cosmos is walking on this lake. Of course, God can walk on water. Of course, God can walk in the midst of a storm. That makes perfect sense. He created everything. And so it makes sense of why Jesus is able to walk on water and perform this miracle. You know, we read earlier in Jonah chapter 1 of another storm, storm caused by God and a storm quietened by God. We know God has control over the wind and the waves. We know God has complete control over all of creation from Jonah chapter 1. We know it from the other account of Jesus calming the storm. And so when Jesus here says, I am, it brings us comfort. Jesus is God. Jesus is in control. But Jesus isn't just in control of the storm and the sea. And he's not just in control back then. He's in control of all things for all time. So there's nothing to fear for us either. We have nothing to fear. I was having a conversation with an older Christian who I meet up with regularly the other week. And I was sharing with him some of my kind of worries and apprehensions about the future. You know, how do do I know what to do in the future? How do I know if I should do this or that? How do I know what to do over here and what to do over there. And and I'd framed the discussion around risk. How do I know when a risk is a good risk to take for the gospel? How do I know when something is a bad risk? And he said to me, Tim, why are you worried about risks? We, you know, Tim, you know God's in control. You know God's in control of all things. So there's no such thing as risk for you. There's, There's no risk. God's in control. What God wants to happen will happen. What God has planned and determined will happen. So what risk is there? There's no risk. Nothing is outside of God's plan for you. Nothing is outside of God's plan for any of us. There is nothing that we could do that could ever surprise God. So there is no risk. So there's no need to fear or worry. We we don't need to fear anything because God is in control of all things. There's nothing that we could do that would be a surprise to God. There's nothing that could happen to us that would be a surprise to God. Everything is in God's plan. And so if you're you're afraid of what the future might hold, if you're afraid of risk or of living outside of God's plan, of not living up to what God wants for you in your life, you don't need to be afraid. God's in control. We can't surprise him. There's nothing outside of his plan. And we see that when Jesus says, it is I, I am. Nothing is outside of Jesus' control. We have nothing to fear. But not only does Jesus reveal that he is the great I am, he continues to reveal that Jesus is a God who saves. Jesus saves. That's the second thing we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Come again to Matthew 14, this time let's look at verse 28. 
Jesus has, uh, they've seen Jesus, they're freaked out, but Jesus said, take courage, you desire, don't be afraid. Verse 28, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. So Peter recognises Jesus. Jesus says, it's, it's me, Jesus, don't be afraid. And Peter recognises Jesus. And Peter remembers that Jesus is in control of the wind and the waves. That Jesus has demonstrated his complete control over creation and nature. And so Peter's filled with boldness at this point. His fear has dissipated, for now. And because he knows that Jesus will protect him from the storm and the waves, he says to Jesus, call me out to walk to you on the water. He knows Jesus has the power to help him walk on the water. He trusts Jesus to that point. And so in the middle of the storm, Peter does something that is almost absurd, is completely bonkers and cuckoo and crazy. A man who lives in a culture that is pretty afraid of the sea, in the middle of a storm, when the wind and the waves are crashing into the boat, hops out of that boat. He hops out of the boat and he starts walking to Jesus. It's unheard of. It is crazy. I can just imagine everyone else in the boat going, Peter, what are you doing? You're about to drown. But Peter trusts Jesus and so he starts walking. And as he's walking, he has his eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. He's looking at Jesus, he sees Jesus, he trusts Jesus. But as he gets a little further takes note of the storm. Jesus, those waves are pretty big. And actually the wind is pushing me back. And the rain's stinging my face. And actually this is pretty scary business. And he starts to look at everything else except Jesus. Takes his eyes off Jesus and grows afraid. When he stops trusting in Jesus, stops looking at Jesus and stops seeing that Jesus is the great I am and sees the things that are around him that are frightful... He loses his faith in Jesus. His fears come rushing back and he begins to sink. It's kind of like walking on a balance beam, right? You walk on a balance beam, you look where you're going. And so you keep your eyes in front and you can walk balancing all right. But the moment you look down, you start to wobble and you fall off and you hurt yourself. That's what happens to Peter. He takes his eyes off the thing he needs to focus on. He loses his balance he grows afraid and he starts sinking. When Peter fixes his attention on Jesus, his faith sustains him through the things that are fearful. He's not afraid. But then when his focus falls from Jesus to everything that's going on, his fear overwhelms him and he goes down into the drink. But as he sinks, he, does, he, does, he stumbles upon the perfect thing to do. As he begins to sink almost out of a reflex, not because he's like, ah, oh, Jesus, you're the saviour and I know I can call on you. He's, just, he's going down as an instinct. He says, Jesus, save me. Lord, save me. He's, he's not acting piously there. He's not like going, yes, Jesus, you're a great saviour. I can trust you to save. He's just scared and he wants help and Jesus is there and he just stumbles onto the perfect thing to say. Lord, save me. And isn't that the perfect thing to say? Jesus, save me. If that was our instinct, that would be the best instinct in the world. 
when we're in trouble, when we're afraid, Jesus, save me. And verse 31, immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and caught him. Imagine how comforting that would be. Jesus didn't need to reach out his hand. Jesus could have said something and he popped back up on the waves. He could have, I don't know, teleported him into the boat or something. But instead, Jesus grabs his hand. Imagine how comforting that would have been for Peter to feel Jesus holding on to him, to feel the one who's in control of the wind and the waves hold his hand and not let go. Incredibly comforting. And Jesus takes Peter back to the boat They hop in the boat and the storm stops. It doesn't say Jesus calmed the storm, but I think we can probably assume that that's what happened. Jesus has saved Peter because that's what Jesus does. That's that's the second thing we need to see here today is Jesus saves. That's what Jesus came to do. Luke, Luke 19, I've come to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' mission. That's what he's on about in this world. Jesus saves. When people are lost, Jesus is there to save. People like you, people like me, Jesus has come to save. And because Jesus has saved us, we have another reason we no longer need to fear. Because there's nothing that can snatch our salvation away. Remember Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height, depth, nothing. Nothing can take our salvation away. Nothing can separate us from God. Are you afraid that you won't live up to expectations you have on yourself or that others might have on you or that God might have on you? Guess what? doesn't matter. Jesus lived the perfect life we can't to save us. Are you afraid you're not good enough as a student, a worker, a parent, a Christian? Jesus has saved you. You don't need to be good enough. Jesus is good enough for you. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. We're secure in him. We don't need to let that fear of underperforming, of not being good enough, dominate our lives. We are freed from fear, which means we're freed to live a gospel-shaped life. Fear often shapes how we've lived, or how we do live, how we continue to live. You know, I'm afraid I'm not good enough, so I'm going to work with all my time and energy to prove that I am good enough. Excuse me. I'm afraid that people think badly of me, so I'm going to stop at nothing to never let anyone down and neglect all those other important aspects of my life, my relationship, my family, my spiritual health, my church community. But when we're released from those fears, all of a sudden we find that but we're free from the thing that dominated our life and drew us away from Jesus. We're free to live the life God has called us to. We don't need to be afraid. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus has come to save us and our salvation is secure. We have nothing to fear. So we might need to ask ourselves today, what fear is holding me back from living the truly gospel-shaped life? What fear is holding me back from being the person that God wants me to be to be the person that God is making me to be? What fear is stopping me from making those big gospel sacrifices that I know have been called upon my life? Now I'll let you go away and and think about those things. You might want to discuss those things over some morning tea before our members meeting. That might be a helpful exercise to do in your growth groups. But we're going to keep moving on. We've seen that 
Jesus is the great I am. We have experienced, or many of us have experienced his salvation. And so there is nothing left to fear. So what is our response? Well, A, our response is to cast our fears aside and live that gospel-shaped life. But in the immediate term, we see the disciples' response to Jesus. And we should follow. So come with me to verse 33. They've hopped back into the boat. Jesus says to Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. The disciples worship Jesus. Something that is only reserved for God. Worship. They worship Jesus. They said, truly you are the Son of God. They might not have fully comprehended everything that title means for Jesus, but they saw some of it. They glimpsed that Jesus has this power of God. They know that Jesus is a person who saves. And so they recognise something in Jesus worthy of worship. But how much more do we have? We understand the fullness of that phrase, the Son of God. Jesus is the divine Son. Jesus is God's chosen King. Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the dead so that we might be forgiven. And so we too should worship. We should live lives of worship. To Jesus, the eternal Son, our Saviour, Lord over all. Jesus is worthy of our worship. And so our entire lives should be an act of worship. Not simply Sunday mornings, not just when we're singing, our entire lives. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Not just singing, not just coming to a worship service, but offering your whole lives, offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Remember the sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifice? The animal's life was given up and offered to God. The animal was killed, had no more life in it. Well, we're a living sacrifice. We're not killed, but our whole life is offered to God every single part of our life. And so everything we do should be an act of worship. In fact, everything we do is an act of worship. The question is, what are you worshipping? Every decision we make is an act of worship. The jobs we take, the suburb we live in, the uni we go to, where we send our kids to school, the car we drive, all acts of worship. Everything we commit ourselves to, the hours demanded by our job, the clubs we join, the hobbies we take, all acts of worship. Every conversation you have is an act of worship. And in all those things, our worship should be directed to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? What does that look like? What does that life of worship, that gospel-shaped life, look like? Well, we worship God by being on what God's on about. We do the things that God does. Not all the things that God does, because we're not God. But but we are on about the same mission that God is on about. And as given to us very clearly in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, many of us will know it, let me remind us of the words Jesus says before he ascends to heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, 
and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What is God's mission in this world? What is Jesus' mission in this world? To make disciples, to save people and to grow them to full maturity in Jesus. That's God's mission in this world. And so if we're to live a life of worship, that's our mission in this world, to make disciples. Living a life of worship means living a life of disciple-making, of seeing people one to Jesus, seeing people enter the kingdom for the first time, and then seeing them grow in their love of Jesus, and their obedience of Jesus, and their maturity in Jesus. Is that the driving motivator for all that you do? Is, is that the, the pressure that sits behind every aspect of your life, pushing you, disciple-making, disciple-making, disciple-making? Now, I'm not going to say that the only way to make disciples is to invite them to church or to invite them to introduce in Jesus or, or, you know, bring them to growth group or whatever. There are so many different ways that we can be disciple-making in our lives. Conversation at work, you know, going to join a uh, sports club so that you might shine the light of Jesus to people you play soccer with or basketball or board games or whatever. It can be showing the great love that Christians have that our world hasn't experienced by actually genuinely caring for people so that you have the opportunity to speak the words of Jesus into their life. Us being disciple makers is bigger than just a particular ministry to join. It's a whole life of pointing people to Jesus at every opportunity. Our job is to point people to Jesus, calling them to repentance and faith for the first time or for the hundredth time. That is what disciple making is. And so the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, how are we going living this life of worship? Do we worship God with every moment of our life? Is disciple making the pressure that sits behind everything that we do? Maybe a helpful question to just get your thinking started is, who am I praying for right now? Not, not who am I praying for that they would get better or who am I praying for their auntie's cousin's dog or whatever, but who am I praying for that they would become a disciple of Jesus and that they would grow to be a deeper disciple of Jesus? Because our prayer life actually shows what we're on about in life. If you can name someone or more than one person, that's great. That's so wonderful. I give thanks to God for that. That shows that disciple-making is an important part of your life if you are regularly praying for the people around you. But if you can't name anyone, you might need to take a moment and think, am I living a life of worship? Am I living a life being on about what God is on about, making disciples? You might need to repent. You might just need to put some time and effort into thinking, who We no longer have any reason to fear. We've seen that as Jesus walks on the water. Jesus is the great I am, in control of all things, in control of everything, in control of every place we go, everything we do, every person we speak to. He's in control. And Jesus has come to save. Jesus is the saviour. That is his mission here in this world. And so now we live a life of worship. So make it your life's ambition to be on about what God's on about in this world, disciple-making, and offer your life 
in worship to him. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you that you've shown us that because of Jesus, we have nothing to fear. And once our fears have been stripped away from us, we are free to live that life of worship that you have called us to. Father, would we be a church that is on about what you're on about in this world? Father, would you make it our mission to be on your mission of making disciples, seeing people one for Jesus, seeing them grow to full maturity in Jesus? Would we work together as a community to do that? Would we do that as we go out and spread out and live our lives? Would we invite one another to join us as we do that? so that our lives might be living in response to Jesus who saves us, in response to Jesus who is the eternal Son, in response to Jesus, our King and our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Now we're going to celebrate communion together. Uh, We are now able to celebrate it in a safe manner, so we're going to be doing it every month, the last Sunday of every month. Um, So it's it's a great joy to be able to do this together. And this is an opportunity for disciple-making. I don't know if you've ever thought about communion as an opportunity for disciple-making, but the Bible says that when we share this symbolic meal together, we preach the gospel to one another. That's disciple-making. So, great job. Good work. Uh, It's good to be here to celebrate these things. Now, a couple of things to say before we get started. This is a celebration for followers of Jesus. This is a celebration that followers of Jesus do. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're exploring these things, you might be here for the first time, maybe you don't know where you stand with Jesus yet, we're so glad you're here, do not feel pressured to join us. This is something that followers of Jesus do, but we welcome everyone here. So uh, when the bread and the juice comes around uh, in a moment, you can just politely say, no thanks, and no one will make you take it. So you might just want to listen and watch. You might want to pray and reflect on some of the things I spoke about today. Um, But yeah, feel no pressure to join us. And for those who are joining us online, uh, we would love to have you here soon. If if you're isolating, we look forward to seeing you when your family's all better. You might also want to pray and reflect on some of the things I've just um, showed us from the Bible, that Jesus is God, that Jesus does save. And we look forward to you joining us next month uh, and joining in this meal together with us. As we share this meal together, uh, 1 Corinthians warns us to do so in a way that honours God. This is a symbolic meal and we get to express together the benefits of Jesus' death for us. But we need to examine ourselves before we join in. We need to make sure we're doing it in a way that honours one another and honours God. And so before we do it, I'm going to pray a prayer of confession. I'm going to confess our sins together to God and ask for forgiveness and remind us of the sacrifice Jesus has made and that our salvation is secure. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know we haven't lived the life that you've called us to all the time. We know we haven't worshipped you as we should with every part of our lives. We haven't given thanks to you as we should. We haven't honoured you with our words and actions as we should have. Father, forgive us. Father, transform us to be the people that you want us to be. Father, grow us into maturity. Help us to together put our sin to death. Father, 
put deep in our hearts the conviction that we want to worship you with our lives and be disciple makers. And Father, remind us of your grace and forgiveness. Now, in particular, as we share in communion together. Amen. Right, I'm going to invite the servers to come up. They're going to uh, glove up and prepare.